series through our doctrinal statement, as Jonathan mentioned. And tonight we come to the second part of the lesson on angels. Last week we covered holy angels. Tonight we will look at the unholy angels. You know, in the world that we live in, there is either too much fascination with the devil, which entails in thinking about his involvement in every little event that does not go our way. Or there's very little understanding, even amongst believers, Bible-believing Christians, of who he is, leading to the fact that he's not always taken very seriously. Now, what constitutes this lack of seriousness? Now, in typical movies and plays, if you've seen, the character of a devil is generally played by someone who is wearing red tights, carrying a pitchfork uh, with a pointy tail, horns, and with cloven hooves. Now, there are some aspects that resemble the character mentioned in the Bible. For example, the horns are mentioned in Revelation 13. Uh, The pointy tail is mentioned in Revelation 12. The cloven hooves and the pitchfork, on the other hand, are connected with Greek and Greek god Pan and Hades. If you're wondering where the red color comes from, it's connected with plays commonly, that commonly took place during the medieval times, somewhere between 500 to 1000 AD, where any time Satan was portrayed on the stage, he would be portrayed as someone who wore red clothes. So that's where the red color comes from. Now the British author C.S. Lewis leads the list in criticizing this comic-looking devil. In his book, uh, Screwtape Letters, which is a satire written from a vantage point of uh, a, a, a character named Screwtape, a, a demon, a highly placed assistant to what the book calls our father below, that is Satan. So this is a demon. It consists of a series of 31 letters uh, in which Screwtape, an experienced devil, instructs his young charge by the name Wormwood. He instructs him on effective strategies for tempting human beings assigned to him and making sure that he continues on a steady path toward damnation. So here is Screwtape. He's writing to Wormwood. In one of the letters, he says this to Wormwood. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. Now remember, this is a senior uh, devil talking to a junior devil. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any feigned suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, that is the human being's mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he says, he therefore cannot believe in you. Lewis is suggesting then, and I agree with him, that a comedic devil has contributed to the belief that the demonic does not exist. So what we want to do as followers of Christ is we want to know and understand what the Bible says about the devil or the unholy angels. In our study last week, we focused our attention on the holy angels, and so today we want to study the unholy 
angels. And like we did last week, we will focus on their origin, their characteristics, their organization, and their objectives. And then we'll conclude with some application that we can take from our time together. If you do not have access to our doctrinal statement, you can always access it online. If you do not have the booklets with you, that is, you can always access it online. And our, so let me begin then with the origin. Well, we learn that all angels were created early on in the creation process, uh, most likely on day one of the creation week. And the reason for that is that we see them, we see angels rejoicing and singing when the rest of the creation was put together, uh, mentioned in Job chapter 38, verse 7. But we are now thinking of unholy angels. While they were created with the holy angels, we want to ex uh, understand when exactly was Satan and his band of minions or unholy angels cast out. So we think of the fact that they were created by God along with the holy angels. But secondly, we also want to think of the time that they were cast out by God. In Peter's letter, the second letter, in chapter 2, verse 4, Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, that Peter is telling us that when they sinned, they were cast out of heaven. In Jude, verse 6, we, Jude tells us, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So at some point of time, angels sinned and they were cast out of heaven. Well, why don't we turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, where it gives us a little more background on what actually happened. Ezekiel chapter 28. When did this happen? Ezekiel chapter 28 Verse 11, remember Ezekiel is a part of the major prophets and to him this prophecy comes by the mouth of God. Notice in verse 11 it says, again the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And notice what else it says. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub. Notice the reference to the, uh, the organization of the angels. Who, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness, or rather unrighteousness, was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Notice the reference again to casting. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. But the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You've become terrified and you will cease to be forever. What an insight into what happened with Satan. What are some observations that we can make about this text? Well, we won't go into detail, but there are some things that we can draw immediately looking at the text. There, the reference is made to King Tyre, but the details go, in the passage go beyond the King Tyre in addressing Satan himself. Notice verse 12. Verse 12 tells us the status with which Satan was created. He had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And notice the place mentioned in verse 13. Eden, the garden of God. And at the end of that verse, it affirms that he is a created being. Notice verse 14 confirms that he's one of the angels. You were the anointed cherub, it says. Uh, verse 15 then is... Amongst those few verses that gives us insight into the origin of sin. Your, uh, your heart, uh, at the end of verse 14, uh, rather beginning of the verse 14, it says, You were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. And I have, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, it says in verse 17. Verse 15, going back to that verse, it gives us a glimpse of the origin of sin in this world. Everything was good. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then verse 16 tells us the consequences of that action. You were internally filled with violence and you sin and therefore I have cast you. I have destroyed you. I cast you to the ground in verse 17. Satan did not fall from heaven. He was rather thrown out of heaven. And then verse 17 elaborates more on that pride. Your heart was lifted because of your beauty. You, you were corrupted by your wisdom, by the reason of your splendor. A parallel passage about what really happened is also found in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, you don't have to turn there. In verse 12, just listen to the number of times we find the, the little phrase, I will. Notice as Isaiah records for us, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. Notice, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. While selfies might be 
a recent phenomenon, but it, the philosophy behind selfies, the focus on self, oh, that's been since the beginning, isn't it? Sin in general, but pride in particular was the cause of sin. Somewhere after day six and before sin entered the world, Satan and his followers were then cast from heaven, cast out of heaven. What are some characteristics that we can think of as we think of unholy angels? Well, first of all, they are created beings, just like we just mentioned, just like the holy angels. I don't plan to go through the same verses that we covered last week. There was a time, though, what, that, what this means, that there was a time that they did not exist, and then they came into being as God created them. Secondly, they are persons, which means that they have an intellect. Uh, think back to Satan with his uh, intellect tempting the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. He actively schemes against Christians, followers of Christ. Not only that, Satan also has emotions. Uh, he does have an intellect, but he also has emotions. He shows pride and he shows anger. And then as a person, he also has a will. He exercises his will against believers. Remember that passage in Luke chapter 22, our Lord says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Satan and devils and the unholy angels are also persons. But thirdly, they're spiritual beings. Similar to the holy angels, the unholy angels are also spirit beings. Our Lord characterized demons as unclean and evil spirits. Luke chapter 4. They're spirits that are declared as unclean and evil. Listen to this, Luke chapter 4 verse 36. An amazement came upon them all and they began talking with one another saying, what is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Then they are spiritual beings. Not only that, just like the holy angels, they are powerful but finite. They are powerful but finite. Satan and all his allies possess extraordinary mobility. Remember that scene in Job chapter 1, he's portrayed as having the ability to go back and forth on the earth. Uh, Job chapter 1 verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around it. Extraordinary power and mobility. Peter in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, compares Satan to the lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour. He's one who can function both in heaven and on earth, as we saw in, in Job. He's able to accuse God's people in God's presence like he does with, with Job. As much as they are powerful, though, they're also finite in their ability and influence. Satan is described as going to and fro from locations, yet he is never described as one who is present everywhere. In other words, he's not omnipresent. He's powerful, but he's not God. He's powerful. He had to seek God's permission to attack Jacob or Job, rather, and then Peter as well. Now we are not told why he always uh, has, why he sought permission in those cases. But the Bible doesn't say that he always seeks God's explicit permission every time 
he, dis he torments his disciples. We are not told that. But in Job's and Peter's case, we are told that. But we know that God is sovereign and he sovereignly rules above all. And therefore, if anything is allowed in the believer's life, then it must be because God permitted it to take place. They are powerful, but they are finite. And then fourthly and finally, they are immortal. They are created beings, but they are immortal beings. You know, the holy angels, as we were singing even a few minutes back, will continue to live in the presence of God as they praise and worship Him. But the unholy angels, they will also live, but not in the presence of God. They will not die either, because their eternal destiny is the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. And so they are immortal beings. They were created, but they will continue to live forever apart from the presence of God. How are they then thirdly organized? Well, why don't we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and verse 12. These two verses give us a glimpse of what the structure may be of how Satan and those who follow him are, are organized. Notice what Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But notice who the struggle is against. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this Darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It doesn't give us everything about how Satan and his followers are set up, but it gives us enough glimpse to conclude a few things. So first, for example, there are rulers and powers. Uh, this is a reference to the leaders, the rulers. Notice Satan might be singular and he is singular. The rulers and powers is put in plural form. So there are many rulers and powers. But secondly, there's a world focus of this forces of, these, of this darkness. One translation translates these terms as cosmic potentates, a powerful cosmic beings. A darkness there refers to the realm of sin because remember God is always compared to light. So the, those that are in opposition to him are compared to darkness. This then is the realm and power of sin. But there are also spiritual forces that Paul mentions here of wickedness in heavenly places. More than telling us who reports to whom, kind of an organizational structure, this term is telling us the location of these foes, that they are primarily spiritual in nature and their ground of operation is the heavenly realm. All of this to point us to the fact that, that we are dealing with a powerful and a highly organized enemy as believers. No wonder Paul is then focused on equip equipping the recipients of the letter as well as us in fighting this enemy. And we'll come to that as we talk about application. In learning about the characteristics of Satan and his followers, we have learned about who they are and how they're organized. But what do they do? Uh, what are their goals and objectives? That's where we will turn as we look at this final aspect of unholy angels. You know, as we think about Scripture, Satan is described 
in many ways and in variety of names and titles and descriptions are given to him. He is compared, for example, uh, with death in the term Abaddon. He is mentioned as the accuser, accuser in Zechariah 3.1. He is the adversary in 1 Peter 5.8. He is the angel of the bottomless pit. Uh, he is the evil one, the devil. He is mentioned as the enemy who plants weeds in the wheat field. Uh, he is mentioned as the murderer. In fact, he's called by our Lord as the murderer from the beginning. He's the prince of demons, Beelzebul. He's the prince of the power of air. He's compared to a roaring lion. He's the ruler of this world. Satan is his most common name, which by the way means an adversary or an accuser. He's also referred to as the serpent and the morning star. He's the father of lies. And he's also called as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and the tempter. But we might ask, what specifically does he do? We will look at that in terms of two, um, two individuals. One is God and the other is believers. Well, let's start by looking at firstly as regards to God. What does he do? He opposes God. Uh, Satan is one who is in opposition to God. Right? That should not come as a surprise as a student of God's Word. Much of his work, though, is done in a covert way. We don't see much of the work of his minions in the Old Testament, not much of uh, demons operating in the Old Testament, but when our Lord came into this world, he released many of his minions, many of his demons in opposition to the ministry of God. How does Satan oppose God? Well, first of all, we already saw in the book of Ezekiel that he rebelled against God and sinned against him. Ezekiel 28. Unrighteousness was found in him, and because of his beauty, he desired to take the place of God. He wanted to de-God God. He also tells lies. He tells lies and he influences people to tell lies. Uh, he snatches the gospel from the unbelieving hearts. Remember the parable of the sower? As our Lord explains one of the areas where the seed falls in Matthew 13 verse 19, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. He snatches seed from that kind of a heart. He traps and deceives unbelievers. He holds the unbelievers under his power. What we can say then is that he opposes God's agenda overall. Not only that, he also imitates God. He imitates God. Satan not only opposes God, he also imitates him. He is the unrivaled master of disguise. He makes that which is bad appear good, and that which is wrong appear right. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 and to 15, Paul writes, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising, Paul writes, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. 
Satan imitates God. He makes sinful behavior look righteous. In his presence, lie sounds attractive, and that which is counterfeit seems very genuine. He does that with individuals, and he does that with false religions. Remember in Galatians 1.8, Paul writes this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. No wonder a so-called angel is credited with the start of the largest cult in the world and also the, one of the larger false religions in the world, Mormonism and Islam. An angel by the name Moroni visited Joseph Smith on a number of occasions, starting in September 1823, almost exactly 200 years back, and thus began the Church of the Latter-day Saints. There are 17 million Mormons in the world today. Similarly, when Muhammad was 40 years old, an angel who introduced himself as the angel Gabriel asked him to write down what he was revealing. And that revelation is the book of Quran, the holy book for the Muslims. Today, there are close to 2 billion followers of Islam in the world. Satan then takes God's values and he turns them upside down. And in doing so, he lures even believers. How does he influence believers? That brings me to the second one. What is his role when it comes to believers? First of all, he distorts and denies God's word. Uh, this has been his mode of operation, his modus operandi since the beginning. Why don't we turn to Genesis 3? a passage that we have looked at together earlier when we were going through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Now this is the passage. There's a reason why people want to attack the book of Genesis. Because as soon as you get rid of what the Bible says is the problem, then solution doesn't really matter at all. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent, of course, is Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What does the woman do? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice the number of times Satan makes the woman and eventually Adam question what God has said. Did God really say this? Has in, has, indeed, has God said this? Oh no, you're not going to die. And then, presuming on God's intentions, for God knows, he says, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Opened. 
Not only did he do that there, but he does a similar thing in regards to our Lord Jesus Christ when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but in verse 6, in the second temptation, he says to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he says. He's quoting the scriptures. He will command and his, his angels concerning you, and on their hands you... Uh, and on, on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And what is our Lord's response? Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In, in other words, you are misquoting the scriptures is our Lord's response to him. So firstly then, Satan distorts and denies God's word. Secondly, he discredits the believer's testimony. He not only distorts and denies God's word, he also actively discredits the testimony of believers. Remember in Acts chapter 5, for example, when the church had just been birthed, the believers shared resources to help each other. He tempted a couple by the name Ananias and Sapphira and filled their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit by trying to show that they were actually giving more than they actually were. Satan tempted them to keep some money back from their sale uh, and show as if they were giving it all. No, God cannot be deceived. But it ended up in discrediting their testimony. Not only does he discredit their testimony, he also diminishes their enthusiasm for God's work. In the case of Paul, uh, he was impacted, but it didn't end up changing the end result. He did not give in or give up. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, uh, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, he says, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And we don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh was, but whatever it was, it was something that ultimately ended up in Paul not exalting himself. So he diminishes their enthusiasm for God's work, but fourthly, he deflates their effectiveness. He deflates their effectiveness. We don't have a direct example of something here, but I do have a verse for us. In the list of qualifications of an elder, Paul instructs Pastor Timothy not to appoint a new convert to that position. Even if he shows that he meets the rest of the qualifications, why? Why, Paul, should we not appoint someone as an elder? He says, don't appoint someone who is a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Why? Because if you appoint him as an elder, the temptation for him to become conceited, that is, excessively proud of himself, that temptation will be great and he will face a similar consequence as the devil, devil himself. Not that God will take his love away from him, but that there will be consequences to the pride that this new convert who was appointed as an elder shows. What can we apply? What can we learn from this? And here I think we'll spend the rest of our time together. What can we, how can we respond? What can we do? Well, first of all, Remind yourself of God's sovereignty. Remind yourself of God's sovereignty. Now, 
that is a word that is very familiar to us who are a part of this church, especially if you've been coming here for some time. We love to talk about God's sovereignty because God loves to talk about his sovereignty. In Genesis 50, verse 20, remember that incident, Joseph and his brothers, he says to them, after they're afraid that Joseph might do something to them now that their father has died, he says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. I, I know you're not there, but notice and reflect on the words meant. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but he doesn't say, but God used it for good. No, he says, God meant it for good. God is fully in control of whatever is happening. It's not that he used it. Of course, he uses circumstances, but the same word is used. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God is not just waiting for circumstances to happen. No, he is actively in control of things. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John, who were arrested and then released, they come back to this group of believers, and these group of believers then thank God for releasing Peter and John, and this is the prayer that they offer, which is a quotation from the Old Testament. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Remember, they are thinking and reflecting on the fact that Christ was just tortured and he was brutally murdered on the cross. Listen again. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Even our Lord on the cross tells us that God still sovereignly is in control. Is it Martin Luther who said, even the devil is God's devil? God has kept him on a leash. He is, on, he is God's devil. Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, writes this, The whole world, therefore, from the highest heavens to the lowest earth, is subject to the Creator, not to the deserter, to the Redeemer, not to the destroyer, to the deliverer, not to the enslaver, to the teacher, not to the deceiver. Folks, Satan is a defeated foe. Revelation 20 tells us already what God intends to do with him. He is a defeated foe. Remind yourself then of God's sovereignty. Uh, secondly, know and understand how Satan operates. Know and understand how Satan operates. What is the way in which he attacks us? Why don't we turn to 1 John chapter 2. What are ways in which temptation comes to us? 1 John chapter 2. And verse 15. I think I have the reference there as 12, but it's chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. 
Do not love the world, says John, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You know, Satan and his devils tempt. Uh, the temptation, though, comes to us primarily in three ways. If you understand these ways, you will be better equipped to face temptations that come in your own life. Uh, first of all, notice that it comes to the lust of the flesh, our bodies. We know from God's Word that when the word flesh is used, it is in reference to the unredeemed part of us. Why do we still sin? Because there's a part of us that is still unredeemed, which the Bible calls as flesh. One day, God is going to give us glorified bodies. We long and look forward to that day, incapable of, of sin. What else does it say about our body? Well, God's Word tells us that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in talking about how to respond, he says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Let me ask you, are you taking good care of your body? Because that is one way through which Satan tempts us. The lust of the flesh. Secondly, he says, the lust of the eyes. Eye. What does this mean? Uh, this means not bringing anything in front of your eyes that would dishonor God. Not bringing anything in front of your eyes that would dishonor our God. In Job chapter 31, verse 1, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Make a covenant with your eyes. Uh, make it formal if that what will work for you. But make a decision, make it a habit not to look any, at anything that would dishonor our Lord. But it also means I'm not going to be overindulgent in the use of my eyes because when I'm overindulgent with my eyes, it then makes my willpower weak, which then leads me to give in to temptation, which is sin. And so, while many of us do work on computers and things like that, I'm also thinking of times that is spent just not without a plan in front of the box. And just constantly watching what is also happening behind you is your willpower is becoming weaker and weaker, and your guard is down. The lust of the eye. But thirdly, there is also the pride of life, the pride of life. Uh, this is anything that is of the world, as he talks about in verse 15, which is to say that anything that leads us to being arrogant or boastful or priding in yourself, uh, that is the boastful pride of life. Uh, thinking highly about yourself, um, mentioning your achievements to everyone that you interact with, so that they can think highly about you, that is boastful pride of life. What then are the instructions to engage with Satan? How do we engage with Satan? 
Well, there's no command to cast out demons. Uh, there's no instruction on fighting against the devil. Perhaps there are some of you who came here tonight thinking, I'm going to give you a list of five things you can do how best to cast out demons. But the Bible doesn't give us that. The Bible tells us that that's what happened in Gospels, in the book of Acts, but there is no instruction on fighting or engaging Satan. There is no charge to demolish or destroy Satan. There's no uh, instruction or directive to engage with him, but there is a command to resist the devil. That is to stand against or oppose the devil. It's mentioned twice, once in James chapter 4, verse 7, and then the second time, 1 Peter chapter 5. James writes, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, how does that work out practically? Remember, first of all, that God's word promises that we can resist temptation. But trying to see how far you can go in the area of temptation is to play a dangerous game. The Puritan writer Thomas Brooks writes, He that will play with Satan's bait will be quickly taken with Satan's hook. He that will play with Satan's bait will be quickly taken with Satan's hook. We are to be constantly watchful and on our guard. He continues to say that soul that will not watch against temptations will certainly fall before the power of temptations. Especially watch those moments when you're physically and mentally tired and your guard is down. Be constantly on guard. He goes on to say watchfulness is nothing else but the soul running up and down, to and fro, busy everywhere. It is the heart busied and employed with diligent observation of what comes from within us and of what comes from without us and into us. You're constantly observing yourself. It's that soldier who's on the battlefront and he's constantly looking everywhere so that enemy doesn't just pounce on him. That has to be your posture and mine as we think of temptations. We are not to engage with Satan in our own strength either. We are to instead always be in close fellowship with God. Draw from the strength that he gives. Brooks continues to write, Certainly that soul that engages against any old or new temptation without new strength, new influences from high, will fall before the power of a new temptation. Constantly be in close fellowship with God. Thirdly and finally, equip yourself with the armor of God. I want to return back to Ephesians chapter 6 as we close our time together. Ephesians chapter 6. What I want to do is just walk us through those few verses and make brief comments as we walk through those Verses, Ephesians chapter 6, we've been reminded already in verse 11 and verse 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And now he encourages them to take up the full armor. 14, verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. Now this can refer to the content of truth, that is scripture, or it can mean an attitude of truthfulness, 
sincerity and honesty and integrity, truthfulness. Make it a habit to practice truthfulness and being close to God's word. And then secondly, he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, The breastplate obviously covers vital organs, your heart. Uh, This righteousness is not righteous works done by men. Rather, this is to bring to mind the righteousness of Christ, imputed by God and received by faith, which guards our hearts against the accusations and charges of Satan. And then it secures our innermost being from his attack. Then he says, shod your feet with preparation, that is, footwear of readiness, of the gospel of peace. Uh, This is a defensive armor. This is the reality of embracing the gospel in its entirety. If you're covered with the good news of peace, then you're protected and enabled to withstand the enemy's schemes. In addition to it, he says, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, with this shield, the believer is able to thwart the flaming darts of the evil one, the shield of faith. And then he talks about in verse 17 of the helmet of salvation. Uh, the salvation there, of course, is a reference to our present and future aspect of salvation. It is both the assurance of God's work in the Christian life and the confidence in full and final salvation to to come. We long for that day. And then he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which he says is the Word of God. Now as you think of the sword of the Spirit, don't think of the long sword that many people portray in movies, especially related to war and battlefield. The word there is makhaira, which is actually a dagger. It's about a 16 to eight, 6 to 18 inch dagger. It was carried in a small sheath and was used in a hand-to-hand combat. Now, why is, it, why is it important to know that? It's important because there's a high amount of accuracy needed to use this sword. It's not that you can throw the Bible at someone in, in, in order to protect you. No, it is to be in God's word, be equipped with it, to not only know it, understand it, and obey it. It is incisive. It must be, this kind of dagger must be targeted at an accurate spot for it to be effective. So think about this. You know, every time you sit with God's word to read it, to study it, for many many of us to memorize it, what you're doing is you're sharpening the sword. You're equipping yourself to fight the enemy. Perhaps many of us already think in those ways. But what a wonderful picture to think about. Every time I'm sitting with God's word to study it, to understand it, to obey it, I'm actually sharpening that sword. So when the enemy attacks me, I'm ready to fight back. Not with my own strength, but with the strength that God provides. And then finally, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. How many times to pray? He says, pray at all times. It speaks to the frequency and the duration. In the Spirit refers to one's submission to the will of God's Spirit. 
put all varieties of prayer in play. Someone calls you and says, can you pray for me? Don't wait till the end of the day, unless you really have to, you're in a meeting or something. But if you can, pray right there and then. For some of us, we have a set time, and that's wonderful. You want to collect all the prayer requests and praises that you receive and then pray for it. That is wonderful. But don't miss out on the fact that you can also pray at other times. Pray at all times, says Paul. Keep alert. Demands a constant focus on the situation at, ho- at hand. All the saints, and that includes yourself and other believers. Uh, you know, many times in our small groups, we, we share prayer requests. Don't let that go to waste. Perhaps you want to follow up with them and ask them, how did that go? Are you you okay? I was praying for you. Perhaps for some of us, we need to dedicate a certain time and a day to pray for certain requests because I know that you're involved here, but you're also connected with other ministries in the church. And so there's a lot to pray about. And if you're not disciplined, we won't pray for the ones that we should be praying for. As we come to an end of our time together, let me quote Tim Chalice, who writes, So pray and pray constantly, he says. Uh, Tell God of your own inability to detect and respond to temptation. Tell him that you are utterly dependent upon his grace. Tell God that Christ's blood has been applied to you. Tell God that you are his child. And ask God to deliver you from temptation for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. I thank you for the opportunity to reflect on, yes, even our enemy, so that we are well equipped to respond to what he does with us. We were reminded of so many things that he does to us, and yet also at the same time we are reminded of the fact that you are a sovereign God. Or perhaps there is someone here who needs that reminder. I need that reminder, Lord, that you are on your throne. There's nothing that Satan can do to me or to any one of us as your children without your permission. Lord, help us to be equipped with the armor that Ephesians 6 talks about, the armor of God. And help us to go forward with confidence, resisting the devil being alert to his schemes. And Lord, all, doing all of these for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.